Uh, Tonight we continue our series on Theology for Life, looking at uh, the big doctrines of the Bible, and then asking how these doctrines should inform how God's people live. And tonight we're going to move on, uh, not really moving on from creation, but looking at one particular uh, part of the doctrine of creation, uh, which we talked about uh, last time. So I'm going to go back uh, to 2018. In 2018, um, some of you may remember uh, the chaos surrounding the nearly two-year-old British child, Alfie Evans. Um, at the time, he had an undiagnosed neurological disorder, had a lot of fight, side effects, including seizures. Um, he was became dependent, uh, mostly dependent on a ventilator. And hospital administration uh, at the Children's Hospital in Great Britain decided it was time to pull the plug. The problem was his parents disagreed. Actually, the, the problem was they decided to, to pull the plug. <laughs> it was the real problem. But in their eyes, uh, Alfie's parents were being unrealistic. They thought it was time to take him off of life support uh, his parents didn't think so, and some other doctors didn't think so either. In fact, uh, there were surgeons uh, at a, the Vatican Hospital in Italy that volunteered to do an experimental surgery on Alfie that they th- thought had a relatively good chance of saving his life. Not guaranteed, not great odds, but there was a possibility that these surgeons in Italy thought there was a possibility this could save his life. In fact, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Italy granted Alfie Italian citizenship so they could more easily fly him over. But he didn't go to the Vatican Hospital in Italy. The hospital administrators refused to let him go. They have some different laws than we have in our own country. And despite his parents' protest, they took him off the ventilator. They didn't try the experimental surgery and the two-year-old died back in 2018. Now, his death is tragic. His suffering uh, was tragic. The way the hospital was ran is tragic and quite scary, if you care about people living, which is something I think we should all be interested in. But what amazed me the most about the story was the, the two different viewpoints. On one side, the understanding was because this child had a low chance of survival with this surgery, uh, because keeping him alive in the future was going to be very expensive and was going to cost society a lot of money, because he couldn't contribute economically like other people would be able to, from their point of view, it made sense just to go ahead and end his life. It's the same logic, by the way, with euthanasia. One is the culture of death at the beginning of life. The other is the culture of death at the end of life. Same thing. But on the other, on the other view, Alfie was to be spared, if possible, everything ought to be tried, if possible, to give him a chance at life, even with great risk and great cost. Why the two different views? Why is it that the hospital administrators would think one thing, and much of the world, by the way, 
And Christians would think a different way, not just Christians, but even people who have kind of a Christian worldview and don't realize that they have it. Why do Christians land on one side of the argument and other people land on another side? This wouldn't just be the case with Alfie Evans, of course, although he's a particular case. It would also be the case in a lot of other questions about how vulnerable people are treated. And while our society claims to care for the vulnerable, progressives claim that, no one's more vulnerable than preborn babies and older people that are at risk of facing euthanasia. Now, I'm not getting political. I, this is biblical. I hope you understand that this is biblical. So why, why the different views? Why would uh, some people in the world say, go ahead and pull the plug, and other people would say, save his life if there's any possibility this would work? It comes down to two words. Two words. Imago Dei which means, refers to, the image of God. Christians believe that every human being, regardless of their intellect, regardless of their physical abilities, regardless of their age, that every human being is created in God's image and therefore has a value and dignity that makes human life worth preserving in a way that the life of an ant is not worth preserving. The doctrine of the image of God in man. And this comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. You can turn there if you have your Bible with you. If not, it should be on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now, if the image of God sounds like a boring doctrine, I hope you realize with this opening story that what you think about this matter of theology could literally be a matter of life and death. The hospital in Italy thought one thing, and we have a lot of differences with Catholics. I think they're wrong about a lot of stuff. But they get some things right, and this is one of them. The secularized hospital in the once great Christian country of Great Britain saw it a different way. And what ended up happening because of this worldview collision is that somebody died. So theology matters, right? Doctrine matters. Genesis chapter 1, and let's begin in verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. All right, tonight we're going to talk about this great and practical doctrine, the image of God in man. Let's start with this question. What does it mean? What does it mean as a Christian to believe that people are created in God's image? 
Well, this is at least plain, that in some way, somehow, it must mean that human beings are like God. Now, even if we couldn't Even if we couldn't define the term more precisely, I think that would be enough to recognize that being made in the image of God means we are more like God than the other creaturely things that God made. God's made a bunch of stuff. We're surrounded by it, right? But there's something different about us. We are like God in a way that the plants and other animal life is not like God. And even when we talked about the doctrine of of creation, we noticed how God told the sky to produce the, the things that fly, and he told uh, the sea to multiply uh, the sea creatures, but God didn't tell the land to make man. Instead of talking to the sea or talking to the ground, the earth, God says, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man. God makes us directly. It's special. There's some intentionality here. The writer of Genesis is, is telling us that we are a little bit different or a lot different than all these other creatures that God has made. So how are we made in God's image? Well, it it can't mean that we look like God, because God, God, it's not that God's physical appearance looks like ours, because God doesn't have a physical appearance, right? Now, Now he does in the Lord Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. But God in his spirit, because he is spirit, he doesn't have a flesh and a body like us. He doesn't have those constraints. God doesn't look like us. And, And being made in his image can't mean we have all the same functions as God, because there's a lot of stuff that God can do that we can't. So if it's not image or it's not function, what is it? Well, there's two themes that, that rise to the surface in the creation narrative. One is relationship and one is dominion. One is relationship. Here's why I say one is relationship. God doesn't give um, the skunks in Eden laws uh, to govern their relationship with him, right? He he doesn't tell the skunks, if you want to stay in my good graces, if you want to stay in this garden, if you want me as your God, you have to do this, this, and this. He doesn't give them rules. He gives people rules, Why? Because if you're going to have a relationship, there's going to be boundaries. There's going to be rules to govern that relationship. So the the first thing that kind of sticks out about being made in the image of God is that we are created to relate to God, to be able to know God. The animals glorify God, but they do so accidentally. But we pray. We can talk directly to him. We can look around our, the creation like Psalm 19 says we do, we, and we read its language that it's talking about God. We recognize that the animals don't, because we were created to have relationship with God. There's a second theme that comes up, and it's directly in our text. Uh, not only relationship, but dominion or authority. God says, I'm making you in my image, and then what does he say? He, he blesses them. He says, multiply. He wants there to be more humans. And then he tells them to subdue the earth and have dominion over everything. Why do humans get to have dominion over stuff? Why do we get to be the ones who steward creation? Because we're more valuable than creation. We outrank all the other things that God has made. We're not just more intelligent. We're not just more developed. Now, we are more intelligent. Most of the time, hopefully. That was a joke. 
those other things are sort of like byproducts of being made in God's image. But we're given dominion because we mean more to God than the other creation does. God didn't provide a way to save animals from animal death. But he provided a way to save us from separation from him. In fact, God himself comes in the, persons of, in the person of Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and face God's wrath. God doesn't do that for anything else in creation except you and me. Amazing. Why? Because of our dignity and value that comes from being made in his image. So it, it means that to be created in the image of God means that we have unique value and dignity over everything else in the world and we have dominion and relationship with God. Okay, number two. Here's the second question. How has God's image changed in us? And I'm talking about since the fall. Right? Genesis 1, it says we're made in God's image. We're more valuable than everything else. We're given dominion over everything else. And you may be thinking, yeah, but that's all before Genesis 3. So what changes Uh, When the story takes the dark turn and we rebel against God, are we still in his image? Are we still as valuable? Do we still mean as much to God as before? Uh, Scripture teaches us two things at once, okay? That in in one sense, the image of God in us has been retained since the fall. We still have it. We're we're still made in God's image. And yet, this, this image is also distorted by the fall. Our ability to relate to God, our ability to know God, our ability to reflect God is still here after sin. And yet it has been greatly damaged. Greatly damaged. Now, uh, I want to show you first that the image of God has been retained. Some people read through Genesis 5. Uh, If you started the Bible reading plan this year and uh, you made it all the way to Genesis 5, great job. That was a long time ago, but good job. You may have noticed that it says Adam, when when, when, when Seth was born, that Adam had a son in his image. And some people read that and they think, okay, so Adam was made in God's image, but now Seth isn't, he's made in Adam's image. And that, that verse if left alone, can, can confuse some people. But you've got to keep reading to Genesis 9. You've got to make it to like day 10 of the Bible reading plan, okay? What do we see in Genesis 9, verse 6? It's not on the screen, but if you're in Genesis, you can look down and check this out. Genesis 9, verse 6. Now this is way, way, way after Adam and Eve, way after the fall, flood. Here's what um, God says. Whoso sheddeth man's blood... By man shall his blood be shed. Capital punishment. For in the image of God made he man. Okay, this is really good news. You think, well, this is kind of a a dark, sad, violent verse. Well, uh, capital punishment, the reason that, that God has prescribed it is because of human value. A society that doesn't punish murderers has actually a very low view of life. I think God knows what he's talking about, all right? But, but there's some good news here. Because if you're reading the story, you may think that, that because Adam had Seth in his image, that the image of God has been lost, and that we're not special anymore, that we're not valuable anymore in God's creation. But in Genesis 9, God says he's going to punish murder because man is made in the image of God. That's amazing. 
We still retain God's image. We are still uh, valuable. We, uh, unlike anything else in this world that God has made, we still matter to God. And then James echoes this in James chapter 3. Uh, I preached this text, I think, maybe six or seven, eight months ago. I don't remember. Uh, but, but James references this idea, not talking about murder, but talking about speech, how we, how we talk to people. But the tongue no man can tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father, that's Sunday. And therewith, we curse we men, that's Monday. <laughs> Look at what he says. Which are made after the similitude of God. Then he says in verse 10, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. And he's right. It's, it is hypocrisy how we bless and curse with the same mouth. But notice his indictment. When we curse other people, that doesn't just mean we drop four-letter words. And we all try to not do those, right? There's more to it than that. There are ways we can use speech to belittle people and to denigrate people or to put people in their place or to control people. And why is this such a problem when we, when we do that? Because men are made, he says, after the similitude of God. This is thousands of years after the flood. And James is telling us, hey, watch how you talk to people because people are made in the image of God. So we still have God's image. But, however, even though we still have God's image, the image of God is distorted. That is our ability to be godly, our ability to have relationship with God, our ability to live properly in God's presence has all been changed. The image of God is still there, but it's, it's a highly damaged thing in our soul, okay? The fall hasn't removed the image of God, but it has marred it. And, and Romans 1 talks about this, how the fall led us not just to sin in general ways, but in very specific ways. And we took the image of God and we, we denigrated it. And we started worshiping things that couldn't save us, like animals and insects. And he's talking about pagan idolatry there. So the fall hasn't removed the image of God, but it has marred it. We don't think correctly. Our, our intellect is is marked by sin and misunderstanding and falsehood. We, we are attracted to lies. We talked about that in that series on winning the war in your mind. Lies seem so attractive to us because of our sin nature. Not only our intellect, but our speech no longer glorifies God. That's what James was talking about. Our relationships are often governed by selfishness. In God's image, we were created to love people and use things But as you have discovered, if you've been in this earth long enough, we tend to love things and use people. Though man is still in God's image, in every aspect of our lives, some parts of that image have been damaged with sin. So this is a little bit discouraging, perhaps. (laughs) We started off talking about how we have this unique God-given value. We have dignity. We have worth in the eyes of God because he made us in his image. He made us to be like him, to have a relationship with him. He made us to outrank everything else in this world. And yet, tragically, all of us have wasted that by rebelling against him. Instead of reflecting God, instead of living our lives in relationship with God, instead of living our lives as if we're living in God's presence, we live like rebels. We live like we don't have a creator. 
our tendency as sinners is to, is to spend each week walking around and thinking things and doing things as if we're never going to answer to the judge of the universe after we die. So this is tragic. God made us in his image, but what have we done in our sin? Not just Adam and Eve, but each one of us. What have we done? We've taken this precious, good gift of God and we've messed with it. We've marred it. We've distorted it. So is there any good news? Is there any hope? If we have damaged so terribly this, our ability to be special, to know God, to relate to God, what can be done? Well, there's more. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in the flesh, is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15 says so. I love 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4, where he talks about the devil's strategy with his uh, attack against evangelism. Listen to, listen to these words. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Notice, by the way, that Satan's strategy in this world is not simply to blind people to propositions or ideas or abstractions. No. The difference between you and your unconverted neighbor is not just that you were raised differently or you have different ideas. That's not primarily what the devil is trying to blind people to. He's trying to blind them to the light of a person. Because Satan knows if people get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, then it's very powerful, right? Jesus didn't say that just his ideas or his witty sayings or his power of persuasion would bring them to the kingdom. He said, I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The devil doesn't want people to see Jesus. He's okay with them seeing sinful, hypocritical Christians. The devil's okay with them seeing churches. He he doesn't mind people knowing that churches exist. He's okay with them seeing steeples and unused Bibles. He's He's blinding their minds to a person. Why? Because he is the image of God. Because Jesus represents God perfectly. Now, this in, in its, on its own could be a little, little devastating, right? Because if we think just about the fact that Jesus came and lived this perfect life, that he always obeyed his father. At his baptism, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, that on its own can be a little discouraging. If, if your version of Jesus is just that he is a good role model, he images God perfectly and he's a He was a sinless, flawless person. If that's all he is to you, it's going to leave you feeling like you can't measure up. Because you read the Gospels, and you don't have to be pretty smart to realize after two or three minutes of reading the Gospels, you can't live like Jesus lived, right? So knowing that Jesus uh, perfectly represents God, knowing that Jesus perfectly related to God, knowing that Jesus had the image of God uh, without any distortion whatsoever, that in itself is discouraging if we don't know what Jesus was coming here to do. If all we have is a good person, how does that help us? 
It just makes us feel like we can't measure up. But the gospel does not end with Jesus living a righteous life. It begins there, but it goes further. Jesus came and died to accomplish something. What does Jesus' salvation accomplish? 2 Corinthians 3.18 Jesus, in coming and in living and in dying for us, offers us a path to have greater conformity to the image of God. Our sin has totally robbed that from us. We are nothing at all like godly in our sin. But Jesus does this. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is amazing. But we all, that is believers, with open face, that is not like Moses who had the veil, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. That is from one degree of glory to a greater degree. It's increasing, it's building, it's billowing, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Man, there's so much in this verse, but just uh, uh, keep your eyes on it and, and walk through it with me. We get to see the Lord. That is, Jesus came, he revealed himself, he lived a perfect life. What he did is recorded in the Gospels, and even people that weren't around Jesus in his ministry, like the people Paul is writing to, we get to see him. And we don't just get to see him and be impressed with him, but as we behold him, we become more and more like him. How do we do that, David? Well, it's not by our own power, it's by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. So, as you live your Christian life, gazing at Jesus, yes, the image of God in you is broken. Yes, you're not as godly as you're supposed to be. Yes, you're not as living as righteous as you're supposed to live. But as you spend your Christian life until you get to heaven gazing at Jesus, you not only learn more about who Jesus is, you become, in, you become more and more and more like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. When we get up that extra 10 minutes to read our Bible, when we devote the time to go to that Bible study, when we show up at church, when we listen to the podcast that, that helps us look to God's word and understand who Jesus is, as we gaze at Jesus, we become more like Jesus and less like our old selves. We go from one degree of glory to another degree to another degree. Jesus didn't just come on earth to make us all feel guilty and show us how we should have lived. Jesus came to earth to save us from our guilt so we can begin living how we should have lived. He not only declares us righteous in our justification, he not only declares us forgiven of our sin, Jesus is about this business of turning you and I into the kinds of people who eventually, when we get to heaven, won't sin anymore because we won't even desire to. Have you ever thought about that before? It's not like when we reach the intermediate state in heaven or when we're in the new earth for eternity that we try to sin and then we just like keep getting blocked or we keep getting stopped or like God puts us to sleep. No. The reason we, don't, we won't sin in the eternal state, is because you and I won't even desire to. Have you tried to think about what that would be like? Man, that is, that is worth meditating on. It's incredible. 
That's incredible. I don't know what it would be like to be a person that never finds disobeying God appealing. Because in my flesh, in my residual sin nature, I still find sin appealing. But one day, one day, while I will not become Jesus and you won't become Jesus, while we won't become God, we will be enough like God that sin will completely lose its allure in our souls. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Jesus isn't just informing us about him, he's making us more like him. And of course, we're not passive in this process. Jesus is the one restoring God's image in us, but we also have a part to play. Ephesians 4 tells us about our side. Put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. How will this end, this matter of Jesus restoring God's image in you and I? How will this project end? It will end in success for each one of us. No matter how far we get in our sanctification before we die, God will take up the slack when we die. I love what it says in uh, 1 John 3, 2. Actually, I'm just going to turn there because I want to read uh, verses 2 and 3. Um. Oh, this is amazing. This is just amazing. First uh, John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I, I really want you to, to see this passage. Um, John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, do you notice this phrase? Um, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It doesn't say we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. Are you catching this? But the word that's tra- haughty, which is translated for it, can also mean since or because of. It's attributing a cause, okay? It's not that we're going we're gonna to be like him and we're going to see him. Rather, Our being like him will be because we see him. Okay, verse 3. If we're not getting this, I'm going to keep going. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, Jesus, is pure. What is John saying? When we finally see Christ, when we finally see Jesus for what he truly is, when we finally get that sight, that is going to cause something to happen in us. What? Being like him. In fact, he says in verse 3, he kind of brings it into the present. We even do this now. Just the hope, look at verse 3. Just the hope of one day seeing Jesus purifies you. Did you know that? Did you know if you're struggling with sin, that the, the only strategy on the table is not just to think about your sin and confess it. One of the strategies we have in dealing with our sin, according to this verse, is to think about our hope of seeing Jesus. And what does it do? What does it do when you and I step away from our distractions and our temptations and our burdens and think about what it's going to be like to see Christ? It purifies us. Sin becomes ugly. Our lives become ugly. Our desires that displease God become ugly because we just want to see Jesus. So here's what John is saying in verse 3. Okay, 
just hoping, just hoping to see Jesus purifies us and makes us more godly. Now go back to verse 2. Can you imagine how much more godly it's going to make us when we actually see him? We'll be like him. For we'll see him as he is. This is amazing. The image of God in you and I that's been so messed up and distorted in the fall is going to be totally and completely restored. Not just because we die and that's something that automatically happens, like dead people get to become like Jesus. No. It'll be fully restored, fully finished, because we're going to see Jesus in glory. And whatever sanctification you and I haven't worked out before then, God will finish the job. And when we see him, it's going to be so transformative, we're actually going to be like him. That's the image of God. That's being in a perfect relationship with God. No sin, no evil desires, no appeal of temptation. We're going to see Jesus. And in the moment we see Jesus, we are going to be enough like Jesus that you and I will never sin again. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing in this work of restoring God's image in us. All right, let's, let's go to a conclusion. Let's look at some uh, practical takeaways from this. I kind of wish I would have just done an exposition on 1 John 3, but it is too late now. Here we are. So takeaways from this doctrine of God's image. Number one, dignity is assigned by God, not us. Dignity is assigned by God, not us. I know I have two questions up there. I'm going to get to those uh, questions in just a moment. Dignity is assigned by God, not us. Did you know, um, if you are a Christian, here's what that means. When you became a Christian, you signed over to God the rights to decide how valuable people are. Did you know that? It was in the fine print when you got saved. If you acknowledge that God is the creator of all people and you take creation on God's terms, it means everybody has value before God, whether you like them or not. You don't have the right to rank people. Like you, don't, you don't get that right. That is not your prerogative if you are a follower of Jesus. People annoying you, even people being sinful and doing terrible things to you, doesn't change the fact that they're made in God's image. So we don't get to decide whether or not we're going to treat people like they're valuable. We don't get to decide that. God does. God assigns dignity. God assigns human value, not us. Number two. Now, here's a second implication. Everyone you meet is made in God's image. That means everyone you meet is worth loving. Everyone you meet is worth your time. Everyone you meet unless it puts you in physical danger, ought to be invited into your home. Because everyone you meet is made in God's image. And lest I forget our mission statement, everyone you meet is a potential candidate to find and follow Jesus. Everyone. Number three. Oh, this is good news. Our sin has not erased our value before God. Our sin has not erased our value before 
God. This is a very, the secular pagan, mainly pagan world that we live in, is a very dangerous place for insecure people. You know why? Because if you tell someone who thinks like most of the world today thinks, at least the Western world, if you tell someone, I feel worthless, they're not going to have any good answers for you at all. They'll make up something. Hey, you shouldn't feel worthless. Well, why? I'm an accident. I got here by chance. I'm a collection of molecules. They may say, well, because I love you. Well, if the person that says you shouldn't feel worthless because they love you is also a random collection of molecules, who cares what they say? Do you get this? Now, thankfully, most people don't, don't follow the logic all the way because there's so much Christian capital that's just borrowed, and we see it everywhere. But if you feel worthless and you are a Christian, there's a good answer to that. God made you in his image. He made you to be like him. And he is committed to making you like him despite your sin. So committed, Jesus died in your place. That's a much better answer than someone simply telling you that they don't like that you feel worthless, isn't it? Number four, uh, because this is true, we should get serious about personal holiness. You know, John doesn't just tell us when we see Christ, that will make us like him. He tells us we should be purifying ourselves now because we have the hope of one day seeing Christ. Jesus did not only die so you could be forgiven of your sin. Jesus, that is your justification. That is your standing before God, and it is amazing. Jesus also died so you would live righteously. I'm not going to go there to read it, but look up 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2. 24. Jesus didn't die to declare us righteous. He died so you could one day become the kind of person who is righteous. Number five, examine how you are representing God. Examine how you are representing God. If you are a Christian and Jesus is remaking you into someone who represents the Lord, then ask yourself, how are you doing? How are you doing? Do the people that you work with see any tangible difference in how you behave compared to your coworkers who don't yet know the Lord? Do you treat customers differently than they treat them? Hopefully not worse. Hopefully better. And our personalities are not excuses here. Because whatever our sinful tendencies are, Jesus died on a cross to redeem, those from, to redeem us from those sinful tendencies. Does your unconverted family see you represent God's attributes like his mercy and his goodness and his patience in ways that they are unable to represent those things? Like, do you have a power in living out those qualities? I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit that they don't have access to, and they just can't understand how you live like that? Or do you live just like them? Number six, you can have, because this is true, because uh, Jesus is remaking God's image in us, number six, we can have hope for the future. You may not feel like even though you're trusting Christ, you're on the path to godliness, but I love Philippians 1.6. 
He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Has God started something in you? Well, yeah, I'm trusting in Jesus, but there's all these areas I want to change in. Hey, listen, you may start things you don't finish. God never starts things he doesn't finish. There's things that I start that I don't finish. But God is not like me. And he's not like you. If he started it in you, he will finish it. First John 3, 2 will one day be a reality for all of us. Okay, two questions and then uh, we can pray and we can go home. Number one, here's what I want you uh, to ask uh, God as we respond tonight. The band can go ahead and, and come up. We're going to pray in just a moment. Question number one, I want you to ask this to God. God, who am I treating as if they weren't immensely valuable to you? Now, don't ask God this question if you don't want him to answer. If, if you're thinking, I don't, I don't want to know who I'm treating like that, well, then don't ask him. But if you want to know, if you want God to expose that, in your soul, if you want some of the junk to kind of rise to the surface of your heart, ask him, God, is there anyone in my life right now that I am treating as if they aren't immensely valuable to you? You may believe that you were made in God's image, but do you live like other people around you were made in God's image? Ask the Lord. Here's question uh, number two, and then we'll stand. Ask God this, what am I tolerating in me that makes me most unlike your son. God, what, what am I allowing to go on in my life? What am I excusing? What am I explaining away that I know is sinful? Could be greed, could be anger, could be a short temper, could be deceit, could be hatred, materialism. God, what, what, what is this thing that I'm excusing, that I'm allowing to go on, that just, man, it makes me so different from Jesus. Ask those two questions to God as we respond to him uh, tonight. I'm going to pray, and while I pray, you can, you can pray. Pray where you're seated, or you can pray uh, down here while the, the band plays. But let me pray for you, and then I want you to ask God these two questions. Would you do that as we respond to God's word uh, tonight? Dear Lord.